it's hard for me to imagine uh, this next year being 40 years in ministry. It's, it's difficult to imagine that Josh McDowell's book, seminal book, uh, Evidence That Demands a Verdict, uh, was published 51 years ago. Uh, when I became a believer in the uh, early 80s, that uh, 1981, that was one of the first books given to me. And it was a timely book. I didn't come to faith until I was in college. And uh, it was a book that, uh, that began to examine uh, the claims of Christ. And it looked at not just biblical evidence, it looked at extra biblical evidence. That is evidence and resources that are outside of scripture, extra biblical, outside of scripture. And it referred to, to Jewish historians, Greek historians who lived in that day and time, who wrote about this man, Jesus. And so uh, Josh McDowell, in a very readable form, readable way, he put together what is really a devotional read, this apologia, if you will, a defense of the claims of, of Christ. And after looking through this and the arguments for the claims of Christ and the arguments for the Christian faith, you are, you are really presented and placed at a crossroads where you have to determine, am I going to accept him or am I going to reject him? Do I accept the claims of Christ, who he says he is, or am I going to reject that altogether? Interestingly, beyond that, beyond that body of evidence, there is another body of evidence that, that we as believers have to entertain, that we have to consider. And that's the evidence of our faith. That is, our, our works, the fruit. Are, are we bearing forth the fruit of our faith? Or is faith just something that we claim? Is it just something that, that we confess? And today's text is really central to everything that James has been saying. Everything that James is holding forth in regard to the life of faith, that, that your faith and your claims of faith are to make us look different, that we live our lives differently than the world. And so verse 14 in James chapter two really becomes a central verse that, that has application to everything that he has said preceding and everything that he will say following, of how faith impacts every arena, every facet of your life. He said it this way in verse 14, he says, what use is it? My brothers and sisters, if someone says he has faith, but he has no works, can that faith save him? And so James is saying that you and I as believers who confess Christ, we have to, we have to examine the body of evidence that, that we are holding forth to the world. Former President Jimmy Carter in his biography spoke of this issue often. He said in his own life, in his own faith pilgrimage, he said he reflects back often upon, upon the question, if I was arrested for being a Christian, would there be enough evidence to convict me? That's a healthy question that we should all ask. If you were arrested for being a Christian, would there be enough evidence to convict you. Today's passage, as I've said in weeks past, James, James is a very challenging book, not challenging in the sense that it's difficult to interpret, that it's difficult to understand. What makes it challenging is that it, that it is so understandable, that just the cursory reading through James, we find that, that James gets up in our business pretty quick. 
In these verses today, beginning in verse 14 and going through the end of chapter 2, I could argue that these are probably the most difficult verses for, for any of us to consider in our, our own life because it behooves us and it beckons us and it demands of us that we examine our lives, that we take a look at ourselves in, in the mirror and ask ourselves, is, our, uh, is my claim of faith just something that I express verbally or does it really define who I am? as a person, how I live my life. Now, the beauty of a book like James, and I hope we, we all understand this, instead of, instead of feeling uncomfortable, which we should, in, in reading James and in seeing that, uh, this kind of being uncomfortable, seeing that as a reason to push back and to step away and, oh, let's get back, let's get back to the Bible verses that talk about grace and love. We really miss a unique opportunity. Here, here is an opportunity for growth. Whenever you feel that tension in a text, whenever it makes you uncomfortable, that's when you're growing. That's when you're being challenged. That's, not, uh, that, that's when you realize that I can't just be content that my life as a follower of Christ is supposed to be moving towards something and how well am I doing in moving toward what Christ would have me to become in my life? And so the only way that that is going to happen is by being uncomfortable, being challenged in where you are. And so like a, a masterful lead counselor in a courtroom, in a, in, a, in a criminal court, James approaches this issue, the inseparability of faith and works. And I think, it, I think he does it in a, in a masterful way, in a very profound way that should awaken all of us. James begins in verse 14, his first section, verses 14 through 17. He begins like any good lawyer in a courtroom, he begins with an opening statement. Again, in verse 14, he says, what use is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone says he has faith, but he has no works? Can that faith save him? Now remember, James is speaking to a communal issue. That's why he repeatedly says, brothers and sisters. This is something that you need to reflect upon as a community. You remember in the preceding verses there at the end of chapter one, James has pointed out a contradiction, whether he has seen it or he's heard about it. He didn't know if it's specific individuals or something that could potentially be there in the presence of that messianic community. But James is disturbed because he's heard a report of conflicting behavior, showing favoritism to the rich while the mistreatment of, of the poor. And James sees this as being conflicting behavior because, uh, because Christ himself has, has come from the poor. God has revealed himself through the poor Christ himself was poor. The rich oppress you. So why do you want to show favoritism to the, to the, to the system that is keeping you oppressed? And so James sees this responsibility of the community, that there are some within the community or of, of guilt, of being guilty towards showing favoritism, but there is a greater guilt of the congregation because they're allowing it to happen. They're not challenging it similar to Paul writing the church in, in Corinth. There was an issue of immorality. In 1 Corinthians chapter six, Paul is somewhat shocked that the church hasn't dealt with it. Something that's happening in their midst and Paul, and Paul essentially said, you either deal with it yourselves or I'm gonna deal with it when I get there. 
So there is this communal expectation of a behavior, of a standard that we are to hold forth as, as a community of faith. And so to everyone, based upon what he has said regarding favoritism to the rich, now then, he sees this as an opportunity to show how our faith works. And so these two rhetorical questions, what use is it? If someone says, that is, confesses, what use is it if someone has a creedal faith, a confessional faith, but he has no works? Can that faith save him? That is, does a confessional faith only, a creedal faith only, just giving verbal assent to some intellectual truths, does that truly save someone? Does that really move someone towards the greater purposes, the greater redemption purposes of God? Is that really what God is envisioning for his redemptive purposes, that, that we confess faith, but it bears no evidence? Certainly not. Again, remember when we talk about salvation in the New Testament, we sadly in our tradition, evangelical Protestant tradition, have just reduced salvation to, uh, to our understanding of it to this little small-minded missing hell and making it to heaven. When uh, in Scripture, when Scripture talks about the redemptive purposes of God and salvation, it is something that, that has to do with the redemptive purposes of all creation. And certainly as a part of that, you and I are caught up in that. We are a part of that redemption that is being accomplished. And so James' question is legitimate. You claim to have faith. You give verbal assent to this, but you, but you don't have works. There is no evidence in your life of transformation. There is no evidence in your life of, of new birth. And so is that the kind of faith that truly saves? Of course, James is going to argue, no. Now, hearing what James says, I think we have to ask ourselves, does that conflict with Paul? Because for the most part, we read Paul and we read James. Our understanding is skewed through the reformers, 16th century reformers, who sought to separate this idea of faith and works. Faith alone became their, their, their emphasis. And most of us are, are influenced through the reformers of the 16th century, in the 1500s. And that has skewed our understanding of, of this idea of faith that works itself out. Paul would say to the church in Philippians, I think it's in chapter 2 and verse 12, Paul said to the church at Philippi to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. The way that you show your respect, your regard, fear, if you will, that you show your respect, your regard for the things of God is that you work and you labor in your life to bear the testimony of that faith within you. It's not just something you confess. And so then James gives these, this example. It's really an extreme example. And you really can't miss the point. He says in verse 15, if a if a brother or sister is without clothing and in need of daily food, and one of you says to him, says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled. Yet you do not give them what is necessary for their body. What use is that? Well, it's of no use whatsoever. 
I mean, you're, a person comes to you in the moment, and they're hungry, they have a need in the moment, and you just give them a blessing, shalom, go in peace. Might you have God's peace? Let, let God warm you, let God fill you. It's about being hospitable. It's about seeing the opportunities to do something. When I read this, I can't help, sadly, but, but chuckle. When I read this response, when seeing someone with very real needs, without clothing, in need of daily food, and someone just says to them, this blessing, this historic shalom, you know, they're greeting their farewell, go in peace, be warmed and be filled, and yet give them nothing? To me, I, my mind immediately goes to the day where we pat someone on the shoulder and say, hey, I'm going to pray for you. I mean, that's the Christian, that, that's the Christian escape today. Hey, I'm going to pray for you. When we have the capacity and the opportunity to actually do something, to reconcile, to be a part of redeeming a human condition and in circumstance, James is fair in asking the question of what worth and what use is that, that kind of faith. It's of no use whatsoever. Listen, church family, that is one of the reasons I'm so very proud of you in our church. This is a church that is on record daily, immersing itself among, um, among the at-risk communities within our city. At every turn, trying to find ways to participate, to be a part of a redeeming solution, to, hide, to, to try and to rectify, to immerse ourselves into these at-risk communities in our city. It's not something we just pass away. It's not something we just pray about. We're in the middle of it getting our hands dirty. We're elbow deep into the muck and mire of the human condition. We don't just say, we're going to pray about it. And that's why I'm so proud of you and speak so highly of you to others, a way that you embrace and understand the need to minister in this way, in ways that are real, in ways that are tangible in a broken community. Sadly, there's a great many churches in the West who wait to show concern about some flavor of the day calls every election cycle. Oh, that's when their passion comes out for some flavor of the day topic around every election cycle. You can watch it. Oh, and they're impassioned. They'll put committees together, try to solicit other churches, sign petitions, put out yard signs fly banners, buy t-shirts, put on bumper stickers. Yeah, after that election cycle, nothing's changed. Listen, our church will do more for our community on a single Sunday afternoon packing snack bags for at-risk kids than any accumulation of churches doing a 30-day prayer cycle during an election praying about some, some flavor of the day issue. Listen, being truly pro-life is about being in the middle of it every day. 
It's not about just waiting till the next election cycle and being the loudest voice that talks about it. Putting out the most yard signs and flying the biggest banners. You are a pro-life people on a daily basis. You are a pro-life people on a daily basis and I couldn't be more proud of you. That you represent, well, the very thing that James is describing here. We recognize those in need in our community and are seeking to do something about it. And so James says in conclusion of his argument, his opening statement, in the same way, faith also, (laughs) faith also, if it has no works, is dead, being by itself. Now, the temptation is to think that this conflicts with Paul. Because Paul did say over in Romans chapter 3, verse 28, for we maintain that a person is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. And then James, let that ring in your mind what Paul has written. But then James will go on to say in verse 24, you see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. Now, both these men are using the word justified, but the key to really understanding this is, let me preface this by saying that Paul could read what James would say and what James has written, Paul would have no issue with it. James would read what Paul has written and would have no issue with it. They're writing to two different audiences. I'll allude to this later a little bit but it's really beyond just one sermon. But James and Paul are writing to two different audiences. When when Paul writes about being justified by faith, he's speaking to those within that Roman community, those that that think their Jewishness, that, that the Jews among them, somewhat of a conflicting relationship, potentially with the Gentile believers that made up the preponderance of that congregation in Rome. But Paul is saying that, that there are some within, the, within that church, some that are Messianic Jews, they, 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 their sufficiency and their sense of sufficiency is in their Jewishness. They think because the Torah is theirs, that is sufficient. They see sufficiency in their Jewishness. And Paul, of course, he sees the Torah having been fulfilled in in Christ Jesus. So Paul's point to those who are trusting in their Jewishness, their sufficiency in their Jewishness. No, he's saying faith, uh, faith, salvation comes by faith alone, not in the works of the law. But you know what James is writing to? He's writing to an audience that sees sufficiency and satisfaction in their creedal faith, their confessional faith. And James is making it clear, listen, anybody can confess. Anybody can say what they want to, what, what they want to say. And, and they may use the same word justified, but, but they can use it with, with different meanings and different intentions. So James is making it clear to a people, to an audience that that think it's sufficient just to have a confessional faith that that works don't matter. 
And you know what I see? I see, I see ready application to the American church in both of these. Not that there are some here trusting in the sufficiency of their Jewishness. But there's those in the American church who are trusting in the sufficiency of their Americanism. That because you're an American, you think that means you're a Christian. That because you're a patriot, that because you're patriotic, that that makes you a Christian. While there are others in the American church, and this is probably the greater preponderance, that think, uh, because I confess Christ, because I confess faith, because I acknowledge my beliefs in Christ and who he is, that that makes you a Christian. That's what James is dealing with. And in both cases, the individuals are wrong. James is not breaking new ground. You, You go back and read the Old Testament from the call of Abraham. You read the prophets. You read the teachings of Jesus, especially the Sermon on the Mount. You read the writings of Paul, Peter, John. James isn't breaking new ground here. There is always this expectation that a child of God lives differently. That their life looks differently, that they've experienced a new birth, they've been transformed. The Holy Spirit of God is is bearing evidence, bearing testimony and moving your life towards something else. And we are constantly in 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 this journey of being transformed. And that's the argument that James, is. that's his opening statement. Faith also if it has no works, is dead, being by itself. Well, let's move to what comes next in the courtroom. And that's witness, testimony, and then cross-examination. Notice what Paul does here, he, or what James does, rather, in, in, in verse 18. He creates a, an imaginary objector, if you will. He creates his own kind of, of witness to, to, to argue with, to make his arguments and what would be called an interlocutor. He's created this someone that he can banter, that he can argue with back and forth. But someone may well say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without the works and I will show you my faith by my work. And if you're confused at this point about what, about what is happening, or uh, I think the question has to be asked, uh, uh, would you say then that faith is proved out by faith that has no works? No, none of us would say that. The most, the most visible way, the best way to argue for faith is evidence in the lives of those who are living it out. That's where faith is, is proved out, not in verbal assent. He says, you believe that God is one, and he's being very, very sarcastic here. You believe that God is one, you do well. It's dripping with sarcasm. You do well. The demons also believe and shudder. So James' argument is compelling. It's not just intellectual belief about some things that leads you to acknowledge that verbally, that real faith is transformational. Biblical faith, saving faith is transformational. It is made evident in a person's life, in the, in the way that they live, the things that they're pursuing and chasing after in life. I've shared with you before, this is my go-to verse. Because before I became a Christian, I believed everything about the Bible. 
My first couple of years in college or high school, if you'd come up to me and say, well, Bobby, do you believe what the Bible says about Jesus? I would say to you, absolutely. In fact, I'll out-biblicize anybody. There was nothing I disagreed with in Scripture. Bobby, do you believe that Jesus is the Son of God? Of course I do. I believe that. Bobby, do you believe he died on the cross for your sins? Yes, I, I really do. I believe he died for my sins. I think he died for anyone and everyone who put faith and trust in him. Well, Bobby, you must be a Christian then. No, I'm not. I believe all those things. I just choose not to trust. I, I choose not to live those things. I'm living under another lordship. That's mine. I'm going to do what I want to do. Now, I believe all that that you believe, but I'm not living my life that way. That's the point James is making. Even the demons believe. Listen, the demons know the Bible better than you do, know it better than I do. It's not a matter of intellectual assent. This kind of saving faith that James is describing that is really found throughout the entirety of Scripture is that it is something that is transformational, that is made evident in our lives. And so he says in verse 20, but are you willing to acknowledge, you foolish person, that faith without works, and really he combines two, two words there, non and working. <laughs> are you willing to acknowledge, you foolish person, that a non-working faith is useless? Well, yeah, it's the only thing you can acknowledge, a non-working faith, a faith that doesn't bear fruit. It's useless, he says. And then he, he gives us two examples here to make his argument more compelling about how you cannot separate faith and works, how they go together, how they are, in fact, compatible. Was our father Abraham not justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? He's referring back to the binding of, of, of uh, Isaac back in Genesis chapter 22 and verse 9. Now, this again is where James and Paul do something very unique. James and Paul will both use Genesis 22.9, the binding of Isaac. And you need to understand the background of this. Within the Hebrew culture among the Jewish people, this binding of Isaac I mean, this was the crowning moment. This was the preeminent event in the life of Abraham that showed his faithfulness to God. And so Paul is going to use Genesis 22.9, the binding of Isaac. He's going to, and James is going to use Rahab as, as well. What's interesting is the binding of Isaac and Rahab, nowhere in, that, in those stories in Genesis are the words justification or righteousness used. But both Paul and James are going to take Genesis 22.9, the binding of, uh, of, of Isaac, and they're going to take Genesis 15.6. Now, Genesis 15.6 is where it says that Abraham believed and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. And as I showed you in our Roman study, the word righteousness and justification are words that can really be used interchangeably. And that word justification means to be judged right by God, made righteous by God, or to be vindicated by God. And that's what, that's what James is pointing to here, this vindication of faith by work. He's been vindicated by God because of his works that has borne testimony to his faith. So it's interesting that Paul uses, and James both use Genesis 22 and Genesis 15, 
to make their own arguments, to prove their own arguments. And neither of those men, James nor Paul, would see a conflict with what the other has written. You see that faith was working, he says in verse 22. You see that faith was working with his works, and as a result of the works, faith was perfected, teleos. And I shared with you in Romans this idea of being perfected. It means that, that we are moving towards something. It means a faith that, that is moving toward a greater redemption. It means that, that this kind of saving faith is just continually moving forward toward a desired end, to the end that God would desire for us. Now notice what it, what it doesn't say, and I say this to the Western church with its fascination with trying to get more and more knowledge. James doesn't say here in verse 22 that we move towards perfection by another Bible study, with another great biblical insight, with growing intellectual prowess and knowledge of the scriptures. No, he says that faith is perfected. It is moving towards God's desired end. Whenever it is a working faith, when what we know intellectually is being played out in our lives, it's being applied to our lives and in our relationships with one another. That's how faith is honed. That's how faith is perfected in the doing of faith, not in the thinking of faith. Now, I'm not diminishing Bible study. But if it's, if it's not something that is being manifested and translated into real time, in real life, in real relationships, in the real intersections of daily life, then it's just a useless intellectual exercise. And so he'll say, in the same way, moving on to Rahab very quickly, in the same way Rahab the prostitute in the same way was Rahab the prostitute not justified by works also when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way. So James shows continually. And again, Paul shows continually. Jesus shows continually. The prophets show continually. That saving faith, real faith, biblical faith, is something that works itself out. It makes itself evident in daily life. And not only this, we must remember, especially in this context when Paul is, and James has just addressed the issue of their favoritism of the rich and the mistreatment of the poor, the works of Abraham were not just the binding of Isaac, his willingness to sacrifice his son. But you know, in Genesis 18, and this is more fitting for this passage, I think James has woven a masterpiece here. In Genesis 18, Abraham is noted for his hospitality, his kindness to strangers and aliens. That's the very thing that James is concerned with. How does faith act itself out to the least of these among us? And then finally, he makes his closing argument very quickly because he, like a good closing argument for a lawyer, it moves in and makes, a, it just hammers for the final time what he has already been saying. And he's gonna say here in verse 26 what he has already said previously in verses 14, 17, 20, and 24. For just as the body without the spirit is dead, so also faith without works is dead. So also faith without works is dead. Now, Paul would add to that, and theologians could add to that. Faith without works is dead, but so is works without faith. 
You know, as a new believer, voraciously reading the New Testament, I always felt like I was behind in my faith experience. So as a new believer at age 21, I started voraciously reading the Gospels and, and the Epistles. And do you know in my reading of that, and, and this is in just the reading of the New Testament, as I moved from the Gospels through the Pauline Scriptures into James and uh, Hebrews and all the other biblical writers, do you know in my mind as a believer, in reading the text, I never sensed a conflict between what Paul was saying and James was saying. When James talked about, when Paul talked about salvation by faith alone, I, I nod my head, yes, that's right. And understanding what Jesus has said about the new birth being a new creation. When I come to James and James talks about, the, about works and faith uh, being inseparable, I nod my head, yeah, that, that's a no-brainer, I get it. There's an expectation. It wasn't until I got to seminary, graduate school, that I, I was shown that there was a conflict somewhat between James and, and Paul. You know, you can leave it to scholars and academics to create confusion where there's none. But I never sensed that tension in the text. It's just common sense. That a person of faith is going to bear the evidence of that faith if it's a saving faith. That person's going to bear evidence in their lives. Reminds me of the story I heard many years ago about a group of Southern evangelicals descended upon this poor city in Indiana, Mennonite community. And this one well-intended Southern evangelical saw this gentleman coming out of a hardware store, and this Mennonite gentleman. He said, excuse me, sir. He said, I've got a question for you. Are you saved? Well, that man in his tradition, that's kind of a, that's kind of Southern evangelical language, foreign, really, for the larger part of Christendom. But this Mennonite gentleman believed him to be well-intended. He, he didn't want to offend the man, and he, and he believed his intentions were noble. And this Mennonite gentleman pulled out a piece of paper and a pencil. And he wrote down 10 names. And he said to him, here, here are the names of 10 acquaintances in our community. He said, some of those names I gave you are personal friends. Some of those names on there are individuals who probably really don't care that much for me personally. But I think each one of those, each one of those names, each one of those gentlemen can probably tell you better than I can whether or not I and saved. What he realized is that the greatest testimony of faith is not, in, is not in how I might answer you, but the greatest testimony of a faith is in a life and how it is being lived. In other words, he was willing to put the evidence out there and then you decide. And like in any trial, after the opening statement, after the examination and cross-examination of the witness, and after the closing argument, everything is handed over to the jury. And that's what James is doing. He's turning over the evidence to you, the jury. But the difference is you are a jury 
of one. You are a jury of one. And you alone must look at the evidence of your life. And on the basis of that evidence, not verbal, but based upon the evidence of your life, are you guilty or are you innocent of being a follower of Christ? Our Father, how James awakens us with his words. Simple words, understandable words. And Lord, we find them to be words that strangely draw us towards them. We want to be these kind of believers. We want to be these kind of followers of Christ. Our desire is for our lives to bear the testimony, the fruit of your spirit. As your Holy Spirit is accomplishing the work of salvation in us, moving us toward this greater redemptive purpose that will be fulfilled on the day of the Lord. Father, I pray that until that day comes, until the day of the Lord arrives, Lord, might we be the kind of people and the kind of church within our community that continues to recognize the immediate needs around us and that we might continue to respond with our time and our energy and resources in a way that reflect the heartbeat of Christ dwelling in us for our city, for our community. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.